taken or whatever at all sentient beings may attend Buddhahood from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge all are steps on the path of omniscience May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Good evening and welcome to the last class of the Lion's Roar. <laughs> Caitlin, welcome. Great to see you here for this celebratory event. Refreshments of all kinds are welcomed and encouraged. <laughs> and don't worry, we only record the audio, so um, there were a few uh, things that I circulated after last week. Maybe I'll touch on those briefly. Here's one of them. Uh, let's see, the five groups of beings from the Lanka Avatara Sutra, which is, by the way, Mahayana text and was translated for the first time from the original Sanskrit by D.T. Suzuki. Anybody remember D.T. Suzuki? No? Good. Okay. Yeah, you guys early on, like Red D.T. Suzuki, the Zen doctrine of no mind. If you ever come across that, you got to read that. Okay, so there are five groups of people, each of whom attains its own spiritual insight, except that the last two don't. <laughs> there are five groups. What are the five? The group of people who insight belongs to the Shravakas, the Prateka Buddhas, the Tathagata vehicle, those of indefinite character, like I don't know who I don't know what, and those to whom no insight is possible. These are called the cutoffs, and they don't. It's not because they wear cutoff jeans, but they they have no um, possibility for enlightenment, for insight, and they're called ichantikas. And then he goes through the different characteristics of the groups, and it's slightly interesting. It's more sort of historically interesting that there's this remnant in this Mahayana Sutra about this idea of these different individuals. And this is what the Gotra referred to originally. And then we had the three turnings, the reference to that from this sutra called the Samdhi Nirmochana, the wisdom of the Buddha, translated by John Powers. And in this sutra, in chapter 7, we have the Bodhisattva Paramahartha Samguta, who says to the Buddha, which is sort of interesting, you know, the Buddha doesn't speak all the time in the sutras. He has other people explaining things for him a lot of the time. And 
And in this case, uh, there's a Q&A between the Buddha and Parama Arta Samguta, Samudgata. And each chapter is like this. It's, it's the questions of this guy and the questions of that guy. There's the questions of Maitreya, the questions of Kashipa, and the questions of Parama Arta Samudgata. And uh, after the Q&A, and the Buddha is, is uh, impeccable in answering every single question that is asked of him. The Lanka Avatara Sutra, by the way, is famous for, at the beginning, Mahamati asked the Buddha 51 questions, and then the sutra, as he goes and he answers all 51 questions. Anyway, uh, Parama Arta Samudgata says to the Buddha, and, I, and I'll just call him P.S. for short. Is that okay? Good. Initially in the Varanasi area, uh, in Deer Park, in the Deer Park, called Sage's Teaching. So there's a lot of deer parks, deer parks, right? And there's one called the Sage's Teaching. The Bhagavan taught the aspects of the four truths of the Aryas for those who were genuinely engaged in the Shravaka vehicle. The wheel of doctrine you turned at first is wondrous. Similar doctrines had not been promulgated before in the world, but gods are humans. However, this wheel of doctrine that the Bhagavan turned is surpassable. It provides an opportunity for refutation and is of interpretable meaning and serves as a basis for dispute. Then the Bhagavan turned the second wheel of doctrine, which is more wondrous still for those who are genuinely engaged in the great vehicle because of the aspect of teaching emptiness, beginning with a lack of own being of phenomena and beginning with their absence of production, absence of cessation, quiescence, right from the start, and being naturally in a state of nirvana. However, this wheel of doctrine that the Bhagavan turned is surpassable, provides an opportunity for refutation, and is of interpretable meaning and serves as a basis for dispute. Then the Bhagavan turned the third wheel of doctrine, possessing good differentiations and exceedingly wondrous for, for those genuinely engaged in all vehicles, beginning with a lack of own being of phenomena and beginning with their absence of production, absence of cessation, quiescence from the start and being naturally pure in a state of nirvana. Moreover, that wheel of doctrine turned by the Bhagavan is unsurpassable, does not provide an opportunity for refutation, is of definitive meaning and does not serve as a basis for dispute. So, the fact that that the scheme of there being different types of teachings that the Buddha gave being presented by himself in, in his sutras is sort of cool. You don't that you don't find that often where somebody says, you know, I presented different things and they're contra they're they're diff they're contradictory and some of them were were the real thing and others were just sort of leading people to a certain place. So it's sort of really cool that in the sutra, the Buddha does this. Now, whether you know the Buddha spoke all these sutras or not is another whole thing. So it could have just been the tradition coming up with this and doing this as a way to support all the sutras that are said to belong to the third wheel of doctrine or the third turning of the wheel of the Dharma. Look at the wording, a second wheel of doctrine, which is more wondrous still 
for those who are genuinely engaged in the great vehicle because of the aspect of teaching emptiness, beginning with a lack of own being, etc. Okay, second wheel of doctrine, it's more wondrous for those in the Mahayana and because of teaching emptiness. And then there's a stock phrase that's repeated in the third, right? Second, wondrous Mahayana emptiness. Third, good differentiations. Wondrous for those engaged in all vehicles, beginning with the stock phrase. The main difference is the good differentiations. In what way things are empty and in what way they're not empty. So, anyway, that's the famous three turnings of the wheel of the Dharma. And he doesn't flesh it out in this particular part of the sutra, but the presumption is that the rest of the whole sutra teaches the third turning of the wheel of the Dharma teachings. Okay, so then let's dive into today's topic, today's readings. Starting on page, I th I think we're on 174. Does anybody either agree or disagree? Does anybody remember? 175? So we finished all of 174 on the left there. Did we do number two? I don't think so. Okay. That's where I thought we were. Okay. A refutation of the view that the Buddha element is an empty void, number two, at the bottom of page 174. And just to refresh your drinks, we are, you know, like going back to the outline uh, which occurs on page 145. Just briefly, there are four main parts to this text. The first main major part or chapter is called, is uh, the Sugata Garbha is present in the mind of beings, right? The second major section is the manner in which the Sugata Garbha is present in the mind of beings. And that has no subdivisions. The first one had a lot. The third one is a refutation of certain false positions concerning the Buddha element. And the last section is the conclusion. So we are in the third section a refutation of false positions. The first refutation was refuting that the Buddha element is not empty. And uh, now we're in the section called the refutation of the view that the Buddha element is an empty void. So he's eliminating the two extremities of that particular possibility of being empty or not empty. Now with regards, so back on page 174, now with regard to the second of the three views just mentioned, those who fail to grasp the point that the vast and ultimate expanse is the union of appearance and emptiness, understand the Buddha potential, the Dharma Dhatu, or emptiness only in terms of a non-implicative negation. In other words, the figurative ultimate. So he's just saying that all of those who cleave to the second turning of the wheel of the Dharma, which focuses exclusively on the uh, presentation of the nature of reality as being an emptiness, which is a, merely a non-implicative negation with nothing more, 
only reach the figurative ultimate, not the actual ultimate. Back to the text, they, they contradict the text that affirm the primordial presence of its enlightened qualities. So they contradict texts that talk about the qualities of the Buddha, of Buddhahood, and the quality, all those different aspects of the Buddha. Now I circulated an email just before class of uh, the Pali or the the early sutra in the collection of sutras called the Tripitaka, called the Lion's Roar of the of the Buddha. And I didn't cue that up, but let's see quickly. The lions. So by the way, if you go to your internet, use your internet browser, which is sort of a cool thing, this internet thing, you can find this website called Access to Insight. It has all the early sutras of the Buddha, translations of them, introductions, and then a whole slew of different articles. Great website. So I just googled um, Lion's Roar Sutra and I got this as the, one of the first choices and uh, there's two versions of the sutra. Many sutras have multiple versions, uh, often a shorter and a longer one. And um, the Pali commentaries explain there's two kinds of lion's roar, that of the Buddha himself and that of his disciples. The former, i.e. the Buddha's lion's roar, is sounded when the Buddha extols his own attainments or proclaims the potency of the doctrine he has realized. The latter, when accomplished disciples testify to their own achievement of the final goal, the fruit of arahantship. Now, arahantship is the Pali spelling of arahantship. And that's the fruition of Shravaka-ness, or Shravaka people. And um, there was, let's see. So, I wanted to skip to the second version. Here we go. So this is the second one, the greater one. The editors or translators or whatever say, it's not typical of the Buddha to extol himself. So you don't find a lot of places in the sutras where the Buddha talks about how great he is. Like in an arrogant sort of way, like, you know, I'm the best, I'm the king of the jungle, you know, I'm the lion. <laughs> But he does in this sutra, and it's like a little unusual. There's this sort of the setup, you know, somebody's like talking about the Buddha in a slightly disparaging way, and the Buddha says, oh, come, oh, that's too bad. 
He's, this guy's missing the point. He's misguided. He's angry. The words are spoken out of anger. He's discrediting the Tathagata. Well, he actually praised him. For he says this phrase and blah, blah, blah. Um, this misguided man will never infer of me according to the Dharma. The Buddha, blessed one, has accomplished fully enlightened, perfect, and true knowledge, and etc., etc. And so then he goes on and he, he goes through all the different aspects or qualities of a Buddha, the Tathagata, the powers of the Tathagata. There's these ten powers, and he lists these ten powers. Then there's the four kinds of, usually they're translated as fearlessness, intrepidity, is the, the boat in the West Side Highway, right? The eight assemblies, um, no, that's different. I was trying to remember in Shambhala what the line represents. Was it fearlessness? Yeah. Okay. The yeah. fearless proclamation of the truth. So Trungpa Rinpoche's version of uh, the lions roar, anyone know what his version is? How he explains the lions roar? Cynthia, no? Oh, Cynthia's lost in the sky there. Trungpa Rinpoche says, oh, the lions roar is the proclamation that all situations, all experiences are workable. Right? That's his, his way of presenting it. So now we see tonight what uh, Mipom and those who hold to the third turning of the Wheel of Dharma uh, call the, the lion's roar. Okay. And uh, just briefly in the page of, bottom of page 174, the texts that affirm, that affirm the primordial presence of the Tathagata's enlightened qualities. That is the lion's roar. Here he's using it in the negative, talking about those who don't understand. Okay, so then he's going to refute this position of the Buddha element being an empty void, which is... Those who cleave to the second turning of the wheel of Dharma feel that everything is emptiness. There's no, no possibility that anything cannot be anything but empty. And so they say the Tathagata Garbha is an emptiness in the sense of a non-implicative negation. And so he's going to work on refuting them. And first he's going to do that based on scripture and then based on reasoning, as is a common trend. In the Sutra of the Jnana Mudra Samadhi Sutra, in times to come there will be those who do not wish for truth but only profit for themselves, who neglect their vows, yet say they strive to gain enlightenment, who love to talk and say that all is emptiness. Okay, so we know what not to do. Here's some more other things not to do. Also, Emptiness is unborn, no one fabricated, it's unseen and neither comes nor goes. In emptiness we're trained, some say, yet fix upon it as an object. Those who speak like this are Dharma thieves. And concepts about non-existence are distractions that ensnare the childish. And as it is said in the Prajnaparamita Sanchaya Gata, 
Bodhisattvas, even if they think these aggregates are empty, are still engaged in concepts. They have no faith in the unborn. So there's a simplistic way of understanding emptiness, which is incorrect, is that, you know, just dismissive of, of everything as being empty. And then there's an understanding that uh, the presentation of the emptiness of all phenomena is, is pointing towards the unconditioned, the unborn. And finally, in the Samadhi Raja Sutra, the king of, of uh, Samadhi Sutra's existence, non-existence, these are two extremes. Impure and pure are likewise two extremes. Utterly rejecting both extremes, therefore, even in the middle, do the wise forbear to dwell. And also in the Angulimalaya Sutra, we find Kema, which is a little bit odd because that's a, generally a Tibetan phrase. Uh, in the world, there are two kinds of people who destroy the Holy Dharma those who have an extreme view of emptiness and those in the world who proclaim a self. Interesting way of describing this, the situation of those who don't understand Dharma. These are the ones who destroy the Holy Dharma. By them, the Holy Dharma is un upturned. Emptiness indeed is the remedy that up uproots every view. To grasp at emptiness itself, whether as a thing or a non-thing, is said to be a view for which there is no remedy. Emptiness and the denial of emptiness do not transcend concepts and must be understood. I'm sorry, must be abandoned. This is repeatedly said in both the sutras and the shastras. The shastras are the commentaries by the Indian uh, scholars. Then we have a, a refutation based on reasoning. Let us now subject this point to logical examination. The assertion of a non-implicative negation, which simply counters the idea of true existence is no more than an ascription contrived by the conceptual mind fixating on an object of refutation. It does not bring one into the very nature of things, the ultimate truth in itself, a state that is beyond all conceptual misapprehension. This point is easy to understand, and there is no need to discuss it in any greater detail. Although the understanding of the emptiness of true existence in the form of a non-implicative negation is not itself the authentic way of being of the Dharmadhatu, beginners are quite right to contemplate it as the point of entry, but no more than a point of than the point of entry into that same authentic nature. So the the progression in in presenting or approaching or teaching the the Mahayana Dharma is to, is to present emptiness in the sense of a non-implicative negation at first to help us go completely beyond all conceptual constructs and then to introduce the Buddha nature. So in that order, the second turning and then the third. As we find in the Sutra, O Manjushri, compared with a Bodhisattva who supplies the needs of the Triple Gem for a thousand years, as calculated in the realm of the gods. So in the realm of the gods, there's uh, the time scale is just a tad different from ours in that um, one year in the realm of the gods is said to equal like one great aeon in the realm of human beings. So a thousand great aeons is rather a long time. Um, so if you collected uh, 
if you supplied the needs of the triple gem for a really, really long time. Um, compared with that, if another bodhisattva were to examine and think just for the time of a finger snap, <laughs> right, just for like a moment, think that all compounded things are impermanent, that all compounded things are suffering, that all compounded things are empty, and that all compounded things are devoid of self, such a thing, such a bodhisattva would generate far greater merit. So that, that's the beginning point, a refutation of the view that the Buddha element is impermanent and uncompounded. Um, so the, this is the, the last objection that he's refuting. Now with regard to the third false view, i.e. that the Buddha element is impermanent, it changes, and therefore it's compounded, is what some schools think, is that Buddha nature, there's like a dormant phase of Buddha nature and then like a fully blossomed phase of Buddha nature. And so therefore they're saying that Buddha nature is impermanent and compounded in the sense that anything that changes uh, is uh, impacted by other phenomena and therefore compounded in that way, or it has parts on its, in itself it has parts. Now with regard to the third false, false view, it may be asked whether the ground, the Sugata Garbha, the wisdom of omniscience fully manifests like the unclouded sun is permanent or impermanent. After all, some sutras say that omniscience is permanent, while others say the contrary. It's an interesting case, you know, is omniscience, is the omniscience of a Buddha permanent or impermanent? And some sutras say yes, and some say no, you know, so it's contradictory. The Buddha contradicts himself. Uh, for so it is that in harmony with the outlook of beings to be trained, whose condition has not yet been completely transformed, the scriptures do say that omniscience is impermanent. Really interesting case of like the, the sutra saying two different things and the reason is is that they're speaking to two different types of beings, those who are just starting to be uh, on the path of training. The reason for this is given in the Pramana Vartika, which is the uh, commentary on valid cognition by Dharmakirti in which she says, valid cognition is not permanent, for it validly cognizes entities. Since knowledge objects are impermanent, cognition likewise is impermanent. So the logic is, if cog um, cognition is the cognition of things, and all things are impermanent. And so therefore the cognition must be impermanent because one moment it cognizes one thing and the next moment the next thing. And so the cognition is changing. It is from a cause. This cognition, this omniscience is from a cause, namely the path, the cultivation of bodhicitta and meditation on emptiness and so on. That omniscience arises for it would be inappropriate for it to arise without a cause because then it would just arise like all over the place and helter-skelter and when you least wanted it and needed it, you know, 
like you're trying to like get away with a white lie with your mother for why you can't come visit for Thanksgiving. And suddenly she has omniscience and you're screwed. I mean, that would suck. Anyway, um, omniscience, moreover, i.e., sorry, is the valid perception of all phenomena. And if valid cognition is an unmistaken state of mind, it follows that it is the assessment of things just as they are. And none of these things is permanent, since its objects are noble phenomena, and since the latter are impermanent, follows that the valid cognition that assesses them must also be impermanent, arising in sequence, stage by stage. If valid cognition were permanent, then it would be logically established as being void of any function. If it's unchanging, it can't like perform any function. It's just one thing all the time. Certainly void of any activity such as that of assessing objects of knowledge. Therefore, it is highly inappropriate in such a context to say that omniscience is permanent. Its per impermanence is established. Likewise, all existing things are impermanent, even though non-things, general ideas, and so on, are labeled as being permanent. They have no basis for permanent existence. So that last part hopefully piqued your interest in like a big way, like um, non-things there are non-things there's things and non-things it's the starting point so there are non-things what are non-things and he says general ideas and so on are non-things so concepts are non-things because they don't perform a function and this is a hard one because we think, oh, I have a concept of how to do something. And so therefore, based on that concept, I do it. And so the concept had the, fun had the function of helping me do something. And in the Buddhist logical world, the concept did absolutely nothing. Your thoughts, which are real, led you along a chain of thought that interacted with the physical parts of your body and together you did something. The concept is the referent of your thoughts, the conceptual referent of your thoughts, and has absolutely no existence as a thing. So the other thing about this is that there's things and non-things um, that altogether make up phenomena. So phenomena includes things and non-things. So just to show you this for a second in a chart form, because it's sort of cool, is, um, oh wait, we got to exit out of that. Here we go. Oops. here. So the classification of phenomena. Phenomena are classified in terms of their entity as either things or non-things. And um, when they're classified in terms of either entity or function, 
Then they're broken down into matter, consciousness, and non-associated formations in terms of their entity and their function as causes, conditions, and results. But when they're, when they're classified in terms of entity, there's things and non-things, which are non-conditioned phenomena, permanent phenomena, generally characterized phenomena. And so, in the study of logic, the, the first thing you do is you, un, is you study this chart and this way of classifying things and defining very precisely what's a thing, what's a non-thing, what is matter. Every word on this chart is defined carefully and um, described as, as in relation to everything else by using synonyms, things, condition, phenomena, and permanent specifically characterized and so forth. And in terms of their relationship with other entries in the chart, are they the same? Are they complete opposites? Or are they a category that includes some of the other? Or are they a category that's included in some other category? So, just trying to whet your appetite for the future where we'll go through all of this and it's really fascinating. I bet you can't wait. You're just like, oh my God. Okay. So, um, so he's saying that even though non-things like concepts are... Um, are labeled as being permanent. They have no basis for permanent existence. They're not permanent existing things. So there's two categories there. There's existing things and there's permanent and impermanent things. And um, impermanent things exist and permanent things don't exist. Anyway, therefore, genuinely permanent entities cannot be in any sense, cannot in any sense be found. It is necessary to demonstrate manners in this way for the Tirtika philosophers. Tirtikas, excuse me, are um, materialists, those who believe that there's just matter, there's no karma, there's no afterlife, there's no mind. Um, as well as for those of the common vehicle whose minds have not been trained in the way in which the ordinary mind is transformed into the inconceivable dharmata. So in the common vehicle, the ordinary mind is deleted, is destroyed, and the enlightened mind is attained, is achieved, is created. So the ordinary vehicle has this simplistic sense of something turning into nothing and something coming out of nothing. Logically impossibilities. Indeed, there's no other way for things to appear to ordinary consciousness. Saying that's the way, you know, that's the way phenomena appear to our consciousness. So what do you expect? However, from the point of view of the knowledge of primordial wisdom, which is the outcome of the complete transformation just referred to 
of ordinary mind to inconceivable dharmata. Omniscience is established as permanent. So now he's going to go through and show how omniscience is actually permanent <laughs> from from the correct point of view. That the other point of view was a um, interpretable point of view, was not the definitive point of view. Objects of knowledge that arise and cease momentarily and that are set forth as the proof of impermanence on the one hand and wisdom as the knowing subject that also arises sequentially and momentarily on the other are no more than what appears in the perception of ordinary minds that have not been transformed, i.e. they have no actual reality, they just appear in the minds of deluded beings like myself. This is not the actual mode of being of things. If there are no phenomena that are born, even in one instant, it goes without saying that there is no temporal sequence inaugurated by them. By things that are not born, they can't set in motion a sequence of other things. For example, in the case of a dream, although various aspects of a temporal sequence called, uh, sorry, earlier and later, or of space, may endlessly appear, they don't actually exist in the way they seem. It's just a dream appearance. Consequently, when the Dharmata, which is free of arising and cessation, and also the primordial wisdom of Buddhahood, in which the ordinary mind is completely transformed, are perfected, this is the wisdom body in which the knower and the known are inseparable. Even at the time of sentient beings, when the mind is not transformed, the fundamental condition of the ordinary mind, or dharmata, which is naturally united with luminosity, is unchanging. Even at the time of sentient beings, when the mind is not transformed, the fundamental condition of the ordinary mind, or dharmata, which is naturally united with luminosity, is unchanging. <laughs> it may not seem that way, right? <laughs> and this unchanging nature of the mind, referred to as the naturally present Buddha potential, is not different before or after the removal of the defilements, which are changing, adventitious, and removable, and occur sequentially arising and ceasing momentarily. the inequality of samsara and nirvana, good and bad and so on, all of which are the dualistic perceptions of the untransformed ordinary mind, appears ineluctably and undeniably. Ineluctably, I think that's a big word, but I think it means like um, perfectly or like like clockwork, like Swiss clockwork, right? Um Yet dualistic phenomena, as well as arising and cessation, have no place in the fundamental nature itself, which abides in the state of great equality or sameness, or sorry, evenness. Within that nature, all distinctions of space, spatial and temporal location are encompassed. This nature is the object of the self-cognizing primordial wisdom enjoyed by the Aryas, the noble ones, meaning those who have... <laughs> Thank you, Cynthia. <laughs> Ineluctable. Aryas meaning those who have achieved the path of uh, seeing or above. So when they say fundamental nature, it's a way of saying dharmata? 
Yes, except they, they pronounce it correctly. Dharmata. Dharmata. Yeah, the last A has a little, it's a long A, which uh, I don't know if that's coming, if that's shown here. They're not doing diacritics, but. So you can t just have to take my word for it, but. Um, and since it is unspoiled, unaltered by change in the course of time, why not label it with the conventional name of great permanence? For it is there, unaffected by the momentary process of arising and cessation. So it is that all functioning things which change, as well as space and other non-things. <laughs> just to cover the whole gambit, we got things and non-things. Just to make sure we got everything. In other words, all objects of knowledge. See, non-things are objects of knowledge. We can know non-things, even though they're not existent. We can know concepts, even though they're not things. Um, they're all contained in and encompassed by the Dharmata. It is not the Dharmata that is encompassed by phenomena, just as it is the sky that contains the clouds not the clouds that contain the sky. Therefore, the fundamental nature of the luminous expanse, the great equality of the Dharmata, is the single, self-arisen, primordial wisdom that naturally embraces all things, abiding innately within them. Nevertheless, people conditioned by adventitious impurity do not realize this nature. And yet when these impurities are removed through the elimination of obscurations and the realization of qualities included within the five paths and when great primordial wisdom in which there is no separation between knower and known is attained, all knowable objects of that unchanging self-arisen primordial wisdom are cognized non-conceptually, effortlessly, and spontaneously, as being of equal taste with the Dharmata, and thus the wisdom of omniscience is achieved. That's a cool description of omniscience. Yay! <laughs> Nevertheless, this manner of knowing does not imply that self-arisen wisdom is born from causes. The Dharmakaya, which is completely free of adventitious defilement, is the result of elimination. Though it seems to arise newly from causes, it is only perceived in this way by those who have yet to transform their minds. According to how things really are, however, within the Dharmata, the nature of the Dharmakaya, there is neither arising nor destruction. All phenomena are equally and from the very beginning manifest Buddhahood. So the idea of it arising from elimination is that everything that obstructs it, obstructs it is eliminated and so therefore then it's uh it's the only thing remaining but it itself has never changed it was never created by cause or condition let's see from the very beginning they are the peace beyond suffering their luminosity by their nature, and so on. This ultimate view of the profound sutras is something difficult to conceive of, even for the bodhisattvas on the pure grounds, which means Bhumis 8, 9, and 10. There is no need even to mention ordinary beings. On the other hand, if an authentic confidence that this is how 
things are arises in one's mind. It is praised as being comparable to the reception of the prophecy that one has become a non-turner. And this this is a, uh, the definition of the eighth bodhisattva stage. So you receive a prophecy of uh, your complete enlightenment, that you will not regress and that you will become Buddha so-and-so at a certain time in a certain place. It is something to which we should aspire. Moreover, if one considers that the wisdom kaya of the Tathagata is permanent, that is itself a source of merit. As it is said in the Prashanta Vinischaya Pratiharya Samadhi Sutra, Omanjushri, sons or daughters of the lineage, may give whatever is desired by the four ordained assemblies in every region of the world. The four ordained assemblies are junior and are basically junior and senior monks and nuns. In the ten directions, in every region of the world, in the ten directions for ten million kalpas, as calculated in the realm of the gods. That's that's a long time. But other sons or daughters of the lineage who acting appropriately declare that the Tathagata is permanent, that the Tathagata is changeless, will generate far greater merit. I love, so all of the sutras the Buddha does this, he like compares the merit of this versus of some like enormous activity of uh, merit accumulation compared to you know, understanding the true nature of Dharma, Cynthia. Yes, I've, I've noticed that and I was wondering, has anybody ever like put all that together in order to see all the relativity of like what's better and worse? <laughs> no, I think that's it's been waiting for you. That would be fun to see because each time they use a, a different analogy and it's quite inventive, all the different analogies they come up with. So here I think we have another one. And then we find in the Maha Nirvana Sutra, which is the Mahayana version of the Pari Nirvana Sutra, there's a Hinayana so-called or Theravadan or early version of this sutra that it's very down to earth, talks about the Buddha passing into Pari Nirvana and uh, the, his last days and his last meal and so forth. But this version is quite different. O Kashyapa, at all times and with one-pointed mind, the sons and daughters of the lineage should persistently, this, this phrase, of the lineage, refers to this gotra issue, like of the family, you know, of the clan. They have the, the seed of Buddha nature, of Buddha within them. Uh, the sons and daughters of the lineage should persistently declare two things. The Buddha is permanent, and the Buddha remains. You know, the earlier tradition of Buddhism made a big point that the Buddha, even the Buddha, uh, does not remain. Even the Buddha dies and passes away into nothing, disappears. And that was like a, a major point of the early teachings. Like, you know, there's nothing eternal. There's nothing to hold on to, even the Buddha. So here we have the total opposite. Anyone who acts on the understanding that the inconceivable is permanent is an object of refuge. By contrast, the scriptures tell us that in considering the kaya of the Tathagata to be impermanent, one fails even to take refuge. 
So if you take refuge thinking, oh, I'm taking refuge in the Buddha as the, the example of somebody who lived 2,500 years ago and doesn't exist anymore, you haven't taken refuge in the real sense. <laughs> um, one fails to, even to take refuge in, in that to think that the indestructible kaya is impermanent, is the source of boundless defects. With this understanding, we should cultivate respect for the perfect teaching. So it is that the Tathagata Garbha, according to its own nature, is free from all mental elaborations, existence and non-existence, permanence and annihilation, and so on. It is the union of the two truths, the state of equality or evenness, the one and only sphere of the Dharmakaya. Within such a way of being, all phenomenal existences of the single taste of suchness. To see this as it is amounts to reality in itself, from which there is nothing to remove and to which there is nothing to add. As it is the perfect view, free from every kind of grasping, that realizes the ultimate truth. What is that view? The Buddha is permanent. The Dharmakaya is permanent. As we find in the Bodhipaksha, Nirdesha, Sutra, Omanjushri, anyone who sees that all phenomena are not unequal, that being non-dual, they are not two, possesses the perfect view. Non-duality. And in the Lady Gaga, Ganja, Paripricha, Sutra, it is said, Things and non-things both are objects of consciousness, but the learned who dwell in utmost purity forbear to grasp at them by viewing them as things and non-things. And as it is said in the Bodhisattva Pitaka, ultimately speaking, for the Arya's wisdom, in their post-meditation experience and primordial wisdom in their meditation, there is not a single thing that can be known that can be discarded, that can be meditated upon, or actualized. <laughs> That's a pretty neat statement. However, when we make correct distinctions by means of valid conventional reasoning, we understand as true what is true. For example, that the path of the Aryas is an undeceiving path. We understand as false what is false. For example, that one is liberated through meditating on the Atman. We understand this impermanent, what is impermanent. For example, that all compounded things are momentary. We understand this permanent, what is permanent. For, for example, that the Sugatagarbha, self-arisen primordial wisdom, is unchanging in all its aspects. We understand as non-existent, what is non-existent. For example, that the self and dualistic perceptions do not exist. To uphold the existence of what does exist is like understanding the way in which dependent arising appears, namely the ineluctable cause, sorry, law of cause and effect. It is like understanding that the spontaneously present qualities of the Sugata Garbha or Dharmata abide by their very nature within all sentient beings. These and other distinctions are means by where are means whereby unmistaken wisdom perceives the nature of things on the conventional level. This is one aspect of omniscience. Therefore, from understanding it and from assimilating it, great and excellent qualities are attained, for this is the root of a virtue that is free from all confusion. 
Generally or specifically, the sutras provide us with many teachings. In particular, they say that the personal self does not exist, and yet they speak of the Sugata Garbha, which is beyond the two conceptual elaborations of self and non-self. So the Sugata Garbha is beyond self and non-self, calling it the Great Self using this weird turnaround terminology. They say that this great self has supreme transcendent qualities of purity, bliss, and permanence. So he's talking about the Mahapari Nirvana Sutra. And that sutra, the Buddha says that in reality, there is the great self. There is purity, bliss, and permanence. The Buddha, Buddha nature, the Dharmakaya, the Sugata the Garbha, sorry is these four qualities. They do so in order that we might know of the existence of the great non-abiding nirvana that possesses the unchanging perfect qualities of peace, solace, and excellence. It is as we find in the Maha Nirvana Sutra that which is true and perfectly permanent is called self. Oh my God! <laughs> the self is back! Holy shit, that which is sovereign, which does not change and does not pass, is called self. Holy shit. I don't know, if, has anyone here read The Profound Treasury, Volume 2? I know some of you have. I know some of you quite recently have. So here we have little excerpts from that book. Volume 2, Passive, Bodhisattva Passive, etc. It says the fourfold definition of ultimate truth, definition of Dundam, which is Tibetan for ultimate truth, that does not need any reference point, is for fourfold joy, permanence, purity, permanence, and being. It may seem like a contradiction, but somehow it's true. Ultimate truth is joy, bliss, pleasurable. Ultimate truth is pure, so the ultimate truth, the Dharmata, the Sugata Garba, um, the ultimate truth is permanent. And lastly, the ultimate truth is being. <laughs> so this is Rinpoche, instead of saying self, he said bigo, being. It may seem to have a quality of ego, something that has to be gotten rid of, but in this case it's just being. Existence of a fundamental reference point. It could become a resource for encouragement or confirmation, but in this case, it's simply self-existing being. When you were there, you were there. If you're not there, you're not there. There's a quality of actually being there properly and fully. There you have it, huh? Okay. These four definitions are the basic reference points of ultimate Shunyata experience, which is equal to Tathagata Garbha, which is another name for ultimate truth. However, not all ordinary Madhyamakas talk about ultimate truth and Tathagata Garbha in such an easy way.
they feel guilty because they have not realized the ultimate meaning of emptiness. Therefore, they think they're violating the true teachings of Buddhism by recreating ego of some kind. But the Madhyamaka school of our tradition says that Tathagata Garbha does exist, and we do not feel the existence of Tathagata Garbha creates any problem for the teaching of the non-existence of ego. In fact, when we negate the ego, that affirms the existence of Tathagata Garbha at the same time. So if anybody tells you that Trungpa Rinpoche did not teach the uh, Tathagata Garbha or the Third Turning Teachings or Zhentong, other, you know, otherwise known as Other Emptiness, show them this section of the Profound Treasury. It's on pages uh, 169 to 70, and I sent it to you. Anyway, just a little... I was not able. That the thing that you sent is that the one that had no name. It's me. I never. I never send anything that has no name. Okay. Well, the, one of the things that was attached. I don't know about other people, but I found it. It came out as gibberish. It didn't come out as a readable thing. Can you send me a note back, and I'll resend it? Sure. Sometimes you know that happens. Oh, let's see. Where weren't we? Therefore, at the very bottom of page 182, when one hears an explanation of this profound Sugata Garbha, unbounded benefit accrues from merely taking a devoted interest in it. As it's said in the Uttara Tantra, which is the text by Maitreya, that he's uh, been talking about the whole time. There's the stanza that he is explaining. The wise who yearn for this domain of the victorious ones will be vessels for a host of Buddha qualities rejoicing in this mass of inconceivable perfection. They arise, they rise above the merit of all living beings. Some there are who wishing for enlightenment present both gold and jewels in number equal to the dust in all the Buddha fields and offer them each day to all the Dharma kings. Others who hearing one but, but one word of such a teaching long for it attain far greater merit than the virtue that derives from such a gift. Another example. The wise who yearn for many kalpas for an unsurpassable enlightenment without effort to keep in body, speech, and mind their discipline unstained. Others who, hearing but one word of such a teaching, long for it, attain far greater merit than the virtue that arises from such discipline. There are those who, through absorption, cool the fires of the defilements in the three worlds of existence, perfecting the samadhis of the gods and the abodes of Brahma. You know, the, the jhana states, the absorptions lead to uh, existence in the god realms, of the form realms and formless realms, as a means for perfect and unwavering enlightenment. Others who, hearing but one word of such a teaching, long for it, attain far greater merit than the virtue gained from such absorption. So you've heard this teaching for quite some time now, so if you have just one moment of aspiring to understand it genuinely, you rock. The teaching in question is indeed hard to fathom, but it is very important to know about it and to aspire to it, because the irrevocable lion's roar, the doctrine of the Sugata Garbha, the essence of the supreme vehicle, is exceedingly profound. Those of inferior mind whose previous training is slight find it hard to take an interest in it.
as we find in the Tathagata Garbha Sangiti Sutra. Regarding this, my wisdom, those of childish mind have doubts. My wisdom does not change its state. It is like space in which an arrow flies and falls without hitting anything. Also, the Sarva, Sarva Vaidalya Samgraha Sutra says, through the blessing of the Maras, those foolish people fall into the lower realms, for they have blamed and criticized this these, this teaching. They even want to blame and criticize those who set forth the Tathagata's teaching. And as written in the uh, Brahmadanta Paripitra Sutra, this, when this well-turned teaching of the Dharma is expounded, those of evil conduct think that it is incorrect. When without faith they harbor doubts, they're driven mad for myriads of kalpas. Through thoughts bereft of faith, they turn to evil deeds. The minds of those with angry thoughts are uncontrolled, repudiating all things that are meaningful. Through lack of faith, they cling just to the dregs. Puffed up with pride, forever arrogant, these faithless ones bow down to none. They contradict with words devoid of virtue, defiling thus the doctrine of victorious ones like Tirtikas. They waver and have doubts. They go against the Dharma, which they bring to ruin. The Dharma that these faithless ones forsake. And in the Dushila Nikraha Sutra it is said, O Shariputra, this world of ours will be completely filled with unholy beings who sink to pursuing nothing but their own livelihood, who are addicted to controversy, harming both themselves and others. When I reflect on all these texts, I cannot help thinking that the age of dregs is well advanced, and that the beings born now, when the teachings are at their end, have a distorted understanding of the four reliances. Well, there's no footnote. Who knows my four reliances? Who's got the four reliances down? Rely upon... The teaching, not the teacher. Cold beer, not warm beer. No, rely upon uh, the teaching, not... Uh, not the teacher. That's one of them. The uh, definitive, not the provisional. Rely on the definitive teachings, not the provisional teachings. That's another. Meaning, not the words. Thank you. Yeah, that's the first one. Rely on the meaning, not the words. Yeah, sorry, I get them in the wrong order. <laughs> yeah. And what's the last one? One more. Excuse me. Uh, Rely, it starts this way it starts rely on rely wisdom, on, not, it has yes, yes rely on wisdom not consciousness right there you go. all right so rely on the meaning not the words you know like if some teacher uses silly wording just you know don't disparage it just because the wording is silly, but look for the meaning. Or vice versa, if a teacher uses really beautiful language, but it's all bullshit, you know, don't get sucked in. And then uh, likewise, don't uh, rely on the teaching, not the teacher. You know, if the teacher is uh, very charismatic, but doesn't say anything meaningful, don't rely on that teacher, but rely on teachings, even if they come from a, 
a crazy person and then rely on definitive meaning teachings and not provisional. And we just learned that there's a sutra that says the sutras of the third turning are definitive and the other two are interpretable. And then lastly, re rely on primordial wisdom and not consciousness. Consciousness is dualistic, is limited, is conventional. Primordial wisdom is unfathomable, is limitless, and understands all the true nature of all phenomena. As a result, the crucial point of the tradition of the supreme vehicle, that is the teaching on the Tathagata Karma, has already declined in a contrived and a contrived and counterfeit teaching has arisen. It is indeed rare to find people who treasure this doctrine, the very life force of the Mahayana. Simply through the fact of being born in the end time of the teachings of the Vidyadara lineage of the old translation school. So he, that's the second time he's, he's made a reference to this idea that he's living at the end time of the teachings. And uh, there's uh, this... Uh, there's places in the sutras where the Buddha talk about talks about how long the Dharma will, will last, and he basically says the Dharma is going to last. Um, I, I think it's like 2,500 years, and he says there's these 500-year periods, and each 500 years it declines slightly more, slightly more, and he he goes through what are the signs of those different 500-year periods and so forth. But interesting timing, huh? I have seen and heard many precious teachings of that same lineage. Thanks to my good fortune, I've been able to place upon my head. This is a really cool way that traditionally one expresses reverence for one's teacher. <laughs> you okay there, Caitlin? You bang your knee or something? <laughs> I just slammed my knee into the filing cabinet. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Ouch. All right. <laughs> Honestly, relative or ultimate, that shit just hurt. Definitely, definitely we're in the in the dark ages of the end time of the teachings. That's conclusive proof. Um, I've been able to place upon my head the lotus feet of several perfect spiritual friends. So... The teacher's feet are like lotuses, right? They walk on these little lotus pads floating across the water or the air. Uh, we should do that. We should make like shoes that like are, look like lotuses, right? <laughs> and uh, notably the omniscient Dorje Zigi, Vajra confidence. That's what that means. Indestructible confidence, Dorji Ziji, what a great name. Jamyan Kensei Wangpo, the Kensei the Great, who, as the regent of the powerful Buddha Padmasambhava, is Manjushri, ever youthful, appearing in human form. And though I am immature in years and intelligence, a certain light, slight capacity regarding these profound teachings has, as a result of my great teacher, been born in me. Therefore, this well-turned explanation of the naturally present Buddha potential, the Dharmadhatu, in the matter of a non-abiding union of appearance and emptiness. That's a cool phrase, by the way. Um, you know, usually they talk about the union, but a non-abiding union. <laughs> 
a union that goes beyond like being a thing. Things abide. Non-abiding only applies to that which is beyond things and non-things. Uh, free from all extremes. This constitutes a lion's roar. Now, as we find in the uh, in the Brahma Vishesha Chinta Chinti Paripritcha Sutra. Paripritcha, by the way, you've seen it repeated over and over again. It means the questions of. And so many of the sutras are named after the interlocutor, the person asking the questions of the Buddha. So there are the questions of so-and-so Buddha, of sutra, the questions of so-and-so sutra. Odeva Pucha, teachings that speak of non-attachment constitute the lion's roar. Teachings that speak of attachment are not a lion's roar, but the yapping of foxes. <laughs> That was so funny. You ever hear it like a group of foxes yapping? It's really quite uh, unusual and funny. And it's not at all like frightening, right? Those who teach with some secondary purpose in mind do not express the lion's roar. And we find also in the Mahanirvana Sutra. The lion's roar is the definitive teaching that the Buddha nature lies within every sentient being, that the Tathagata constantly abides without fluctuation. That's simple and straightforward. However extensive the explanations given in solitary places may be, do not, O son of the lineage, refer to them as the roaring of a lion. A great lion's roar occurs only when something is proclaimed in the midst of many scholars endowed with wisdom. Moreover, the lion's roar is not an explanation of the fact that all phenomena are impermanent, that they are suffering, that they are without self and utterly impure. It occurs only when the Tathagata is explained as permanent, as blissful, as self, and as utterly pure. The scriptures speak about the lion's roar with many examples, and we should understand the matter accordingly. Now, if this clear description of the Sugata's own path is not in accordance with the opinions of certain people, it is nevertheless a statement of the perfect path, and therefore it should not disturb their minds. So he's, he's saying, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not saying all this stuff to like upset anybody or to argue with people. This is just the way it is. As it is said in the Madhyamaka Avatara, so it's quoting Chandrakirti's introduction to the Middle Way, the arguments contained within our treatises, treatises were not contrived through love of disputation. It's not that we just, you know, love debating. They, are, they set forth suchness only for the sake of freedom. They are not to be blamed if while expounding emptiness, they show the falseness of discordant teachings. This is how to protect the teachings. And we find in the Samadhi Raja Sutra, what does it mean to protect the Dharma? It means to demolish any attack against the Dharma through the application of what is in agreement with that Dharma. So when people start explaining things incorrectly, it's your responsibility to correct the situation so that others don't come away with a false understanding. 
that's a little bit difficult when people start talking about Buddha nature. So after this course, you know, you've studied this extensively and you have some glimmer of an idea, what is Buddha nature? It's not as simple as it used to be, is it? <laughs> and so you're going to hear lots of people talking about Buddha nature for many, many years. And, and uh, you'll have that quandary of like, well, Hmm, do I say anything or not? It's also the way to uphold the teachings as this is described in the uh, Gangana Ganja, the questions of Lady Gaga's Ganja Sutra. Those who gain the true enlightenment of the victorious ones perfectly uphold the authentic Dharma. Those with perfect understanding of this unstained state uphold the teaching of all enlightened beings. To uphold the Dharma as a way of repaying the kindness of the Buddhas as well as of accumulating unbounded merit. The Tathagata, Mahakaruna, Nirdesha. So the, uh, the Nirdesha means teachings. The teachings of so and so. So here's the teaching of the great compassion, Mahakaruna of the Tathagata Sutra. Those who keep close company with Buddhist teaching and thereby have renunciation uninterested by worldly things will be upholders of the teaching of the blissful one and will repay the kindness of the Buddhas. And as it is said in the Gangana Ganja Paripresha Sutra, um, even if he taught throughout a hundred million kalpas, never would the Buddha's wisdom reach its end. Those who hold the teachings of the Tathagata would likewise have a measurable benefit. Now we last reach the last of the four sections of the text, the conclusion. Although I may have gained some slight proficiency in speaking of the scriptural tradition of the supreme vehicle, I am still young and immature in training. So who would trust the chatter of a silly shaveling? <laughs> a shaveling? What is a shaveling? Somebody has something to say. Is that literally the definition of a shaveling? He was that, you're saying he, he, was, he was 21, right? <laughs> People these days follow those who are well known, bereft of the intelligence to test what's good and bad, and most are utterly disturbed by demons of their envy. So I readily admit it's not the time for well-turned discourse. And yet because my supreme teacher and my Yidam deity, I constantly revere within the lotus of my heart an explanation of the words and meanings of the perfect scriptures clearly dawned within the space of my awareness. Long-lasting joy arose and lively interest in the practices of well-turned explanations, a delight that in my later lives and other realms will grow and increase like the waxing moon. The joy arising in the hearts of the intelligent that comes from the discussion, this discussion of the ultimate profundity, is not the bliss of those who fall in the extremes that are samsara and nirvana. It is indeed a joyous feast for those of perfect fortune. Thus, the lion's roaring of the supreme vehicle, the union of appearances and emptiness, beyond all clinging, subjugates the herd of savage beasts, all evil views. May the essence of the Buddha's teaching spread in all the ten directions. My Dharma brother who bears the name of Guna, Guna is virtue, 
Kenpo Yunten Gyatso. So Guna is uh, virtue in Sanskrit, and then his name Yunten is virtue in Tibetan, and Gyatso is ocean. So the Kenpo, which is the title, oceanic virtue, a holder of the jeweled treasury of the three trainings, once said to me, writing down whatever comes into your mind, please compose an explanation of the stanza in the Uttara Tantra Shastra, beginning, because the Kaya perfect Buddhahood radiates. So in order to comply with his request, I, Bonte, Lojo Drime, Bonte, that's interesting, Lojo Drime, wrote this text just as it occurred to me, may virtue increase. And then the postscript, after lying unnoticed for two whole cycles of years, 24 years, cycle being 12 years in the uh, calendar used in Tibetan China, um, among the Lord Mipam's papers, this text was at length discovered. As the great master Lungtok was arranging for woodblocks to be carved for it, the master Yunten Gyatso, who had first requested the text, visited, and with the learned Lekbe Lojo inquired whether any additions or modifications were to be made. Then Lojo Dreamy Jampo Gebe Dorje, i.e. Mipom Rimshe himself, interesting, uh, uses a different name entirely, quite a long name, spent two days preparing a new copy, bringing into focus several passages from the original text and adding several important points that had not been previously mentioned. This was done on, on an auspicious date in the second half of the fourth month, Sagadawa, which is the uh, month of the Buddha's birth, enlightenment, and parinirvana, in the iron hair year of the 15th Rabjung cycle. 1891 at the retreat place of Dule Namgyal Leng. And that completes our exploration of the treaties, the lions or explanation of Buddha nature. So what was the footnote? 287 on his name. It just said it was one of his names. Oh. <laughs> okay. One of Meepom's names. So there you have it. Comments? It's nine o'clock. We have 15 minutes to celebrate or have, Bravo, or have well questions done. or comments. I, I would say it. he did a lot of editing <laughs> on that second round because I figured it out. I said, well, look, he was 21 when he wrote this. I'm like, There's a lot of mysticism and awakened quality to it that I think would take longer than 21 years to achieve. So, but, but it does make the point of it's always there, that Buddha quality. So even at 21, he may not have understood what he was saying, but it still came through. So I don't know. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. It's cool that, that he could be like the, uh, the mouthpiece for like profound dharma, but not actually understand it himself. That's an interesting idea. Yeah, you know, supposedly he wrote uh, his other, this other major exposition of uh, Madhyamaka when he was seven or some ridiculous age. This text does not give you, to me, it doesn't give the impression of something he doesn't understand that he's talking about. 
That's no, and that's why sure. I said he did a lot of editing because in 24 years he had a much greater understanding. So, <laughs> 24 years later, so he was 45. Now it makes sense. Okay, I don't know. It's a little presumptuous to to think that you know what his mind was like at any point in time. <laughs> But it's fun to speculate, I guess. Trump Ramsey also like discovered and created and wrote things when he was like four or five years old. You know, it was like Mozart. You know, imagine seeing Mozart like a little three, four year old kid like playing piano and like just coming up with like amazing pieces on the piano, you know? It's like that would be so mind blowing. And it's the same for these guys. They're little uh, prodigies. When they were talking about the Dark Ages on page 185, that section, and when they said the thing about the world of ours will be completely filled with unholy beings who sink to pursuing nothing but their own livelihood and who are addicted to controversy, harming both themselves and others, I couldn't help but think at that moment, and they didn't even know about social media back then. Yeah, right. Yeah. Per- maybe perfect, that's perfect description of today. Maybe that's what they were talking about. Maybe. I, I, but I thought they were sort of, I mean, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they foresaw it. They just didn't have the specific terminology, but maybe they saw it. <laughs> that's funny. It certainly, I mean, that was a very apt description of where we are now. Yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts or comments? So, like, uh, um, let me just ask a couple of simple questions. So, does is the Buddha nature in ascension being the same as the Buddha nature in a Buddha? Or is it different? Yes. It's the same. It's the same. (laughs) So why are sentient beings not Buddhas? There's a little covering over it, so you can't see it. Sentience. Sentience. They still have that problem. Yeah, they're sentient. (laughs) Yeah, got to give up being sentient in order to be a Buddha. That's a funny gloss, isn't that? That Buddhas are not sentient beings. They become a whole different phenomena. Is it because they're not sentient or because they're not beings? Yeah, probably both. (laughs) Because they're permanent and unchanging. Yeah, neat. (laughs) What else? Any other thoughts? What's the next class? Yeah, that's a good topic. Yeah, what should we do next? Didn't we have something we were going to do? Right. Was it what was that book that just came out in June? We came out that we couldn't do because it wasn't out yet. Yeah, what was it? A luminous heart or something, right? Yeah, is that still Brunholzl. on the agenda? Brunholzl and uh, some texts on. Uh, on the Buddha nature and things like that, yeah. There's that. 
And obviously you've been already been working all summer on putting that one together, right? <laughs> uh-huh. That one's easy because it's just, you know, going through parts of the book. It's too long to go through the whole the whole thing. But uh, there's that or there, there's the tantalizing idea of like actually going through the the shader material in like a structured way from from the uh, stuff that you learn at the beginning of what I was talking about before, where you learn the definition of terms and and uh, what are things and non things and and all that stuff, and so you learn the language, you learn how to think in in the uh, in the Buddhist logical world way. And uh, going through that material as uh, a way of sort of go analyzing or understanding in, in detail the Abhidharma, and then uh, which is the classification of phenomena, and then the 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 uh, tradition of valid cognition, which starts with the classification of uh, mental states or ways of knowing different ways of knowing phenomena as being either uh, valid cognition or non-valid cognition or what constitutes valid cognition, things like that. I mean, if that isn't exciting to you guys, I don't know what is. I'm down. Yeah, I think it's exciting. <laughs> and, then, and then there's the wisdom chapter, which we've been putting off forever. Yeah, then there's the wisdom chapter by me, Palm. Which is his commentary on the ninth chapter of the Bodhicharavatara. What do you think, Eric? What what would be fun to do? Oh, we could wisdom just jump. Cha- yeah, wisdom chapter sounds good. Wisdom chapter, wow! Just like dive in. Uh, we I could- mean, I guess we have to do all the classifications first before we're ready for that. So, all phenomena. It would help, probably. It would help. Or we could just, like, dive into Mahmudra or Dzogchen. Dzogchen. Yeah. Dzogchen. Yeah. <laughs> You're always good. Uh, one, I had one comment that I didn't make earlier, but um, the Vidyadara does mention Buddha nature in the Lojong text where he's talking about resting in the alaya, and he yeah. said, we're not talking about Buddha nature yet. That's much more fundamental and profound. We're, but you can still just rest in your own little alaya. Yeah. And so I feel like this text sort of cleared that up. A Buddha nature is much vaster and more profound sort of wisdom than what he's saying is, we're just doing meditation instruction here. Alaya is just Wait, wait, you turned yourself off. You muted yourself somehow. Oh, yeah. Sorry. You said, we're just doing meditation instruction here, and then... Yeah, just that. that. But but then, <laughs> underneath that, way underneath that, is what we've been talking about this class. Yeah, yeah, that's neat. So I just wanted to say that's not the only place he uses the word. I'm sure he uses the word Buddha nature a lot, or, you know, yeah, but he does use it in that context of explaining the ultimate bodhicitta slogans of Atisha. Rests in the nat- in the uh, 
rests in the nature of Ali, the essence. But he, he goes through Buddha nature in other places, and it's in the profound treasury. And with the famous image, does anyone remember the image that he talks, that he he brings up uh, from a movie when he talks about Buddha nature? Eric. 2001. Yes. <laughs> what what part of it? Well, the mono mono. <laughs> Eric goes like this. <laughs> it's the thing, you know, the monolith, the that weird opening scene, right? It, it is the opening, right? It's the opening scene. I can't, I can't remember it that well, but it's like some desolate, like outer space scene or something. And the, there's all these apes around, and the the monolith like descends among into the throng of apes, and they they all go ape or something. Is that close? Ape shit. They go ape, ape shit. <laughs> and they start beating each other. No, the monolith is just there, and the apes discover it. I and see. Then, they... And then they get all excited. No, the monolith plants itself right in their watering hole. And the concept is that the monolith is influencing and changes them. Like Buddha nature, it changes you. Yeah, well, it was everything. (laughs) I've watched that movie a couple times. We'll have to we'll have to watch it. <laughs> um, but first, you have to watch an ad about a vegan mattress. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Skip the ad. Okay, this is it. Can you see this? Yeah, make it full screen. Oh, there we go. They're snoozling. Oh, sorry. That's the space music, right? You know you're in space. I don't think we can hear your. Oh. Oh, can you not hear it? Can you can you guys hear it? Okay, hold on. I have to share it in a different way. Thank you for letting me know. Okay, so share screen, share sound. Okay. Let me know now. Like thumbs thumbs up. <gasps> what happened? Oh. No, not now. <laughs> what happened? Click on it. Click on what? Okay, got it. Oh, oh well. Damn. Can you go back 10 seconds? So slide the red bar back a little bit. Slide the red bar. Here we go. 
some reason the computer is really slow. Maybe on my screen, your your pointer is not moving. Is it paused? It's frozen. <laughs> yeah, it froze. And and these actors did all this prosthesis work. Here, <laughs> do you hear it now? No. Wait, unshare, no. unshare, and share again. That might work. Yeah, it's frozen. Yeah. No, I think you have to stop share. Yeah, try sharing again. Yeah. Okay. There we go. We good now. Well, the class recording will be interesting. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so see, it's it's empty, unchanging. It's black glass surface. Yet when you look into it, it contains all of the universe. Wow. nature. That was intense. I heard about that, Mary Beth. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Somebody, somebody planted a monolith in the desert in Utah, and then it disappeared. That's not funny. Yeah. <laughs> That's not funny. That's not funny. I don't and then it was gone like a couple days later. Yeah, it was great. Everybody Unacceptable. Was Unacceptable. I didn't do it. <laughs> it was Brock. I didn't do it. <laughs> I say Kubrick and Zogchen. Movie film club. What's your favorite Kubrick film? I mean, there's a lot of them. We'll just correlate it to whatever texts are permanent. Pertinent, sorry. Ooh. Buddhist interpretation of 2001 Space Odyssey. Exactly. That sounds like a college thesis. <laughs> Next class. Sounds great. Great idea. Also, who, who will do the score? I'm sorry, Mary Beth. Also what? 
I was just going to say, along those lines, we could also read that one about the Princess Bride and then watch the Princess Bride. Oh. Mm. <laughs> Is that because it has Richard Gere in it? That's so funny. Is is Richard Gere actually in that movie, The Princess Bride? I, I don't know. But do you, do you guys know what book uh, Mary Beth is a f- referring to? Yeah. Let us know, Mary Beth. Yeah, it's like it's called The Buddha and the Princess Bride, and it's by Ethan Nickturn. It came out like three or four years ago, where he where he like delves into these metaphors in The Princess Bride. I guess that are it was a hit. It was a hit. I believe it. Yeah, now, I remember that, and I remember not reading. Probably a lot of first-turning stuff. Uh, <laughs> but hey, we might get more than two people below, like, 30 years old. <laughs> what are you trying to say? It's true. It's Dinner time. See ya. Okay. Good night, Brock. Take care. Yeah, we're we're uh, past our time. Yeah, it's past time. It's a it's a good past time. Well, send in your your ideas and thoughts, and maybe we'll do a survey, and maybe we won't. And, and uh, have a really good summer. Thank you so much for the gift. Greatly appreciate it. I got uh, something from Brent earlier today. Thank you very very much, all of you. And it's been really fun going through this with you. The biography was a little bit odd, but the, the text more than made up for it. And uh, I also had, had had this idea of going through his text on Gentong, uh, Other Emptiness, The Lion's Roar of Other Emptiness. So would love to also do that text by Meepong. And you have this book, and you, you, know, you could read. There's some other interesting text in the, in the book there that you might be interested in reading which are way over my head I I don't understand a word of them because they're about Dzogchen but <clears throat> you might find them interesting if you have other ideas send them along and uh, have fun have a nice summer and uh, stay Thank in you, touch and hope to see everyone. you in the fall Thank, Thank you, for Thank you. Oh, we have to. Awesome. We have to dedicate. We have oh, to yeah. dedicate the, the mayor, right? By this merit, may all obtain omniscience. May it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy ways of birth, though sickness, and the, from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the victim's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Thank you, Emily, for hosting us. And thank you all for attending. Thank you. See so much. you soon. Be well. Bye, guys. Thank you, Derek. Bye. Thank you, Derek. Bye. Thank you. You're awesome. Thank you.